0: Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media.
1: LGBTQ people don't come from LGBTQ communities, so they have to find information about who they are and what that means and what to do from other sources, which is one of the reasons why the media plays such an important role, because that's where we generally turn to find out about the world.
0: This is Outcasting, public radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported, independent producer based in New York online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Stephen, a youth participant in Outcasting's main studio in Westchester County, New York. On this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Callie talks with Professor Larry Gross, a professor of communication at the Andenberg School for Communications and Journalism at the University of Southern California. As well as being a pioneer in the subject of gay and lesbian studies, Professor Gross has authored numerous books on the subject— In this interview, Professor Gross talks about how LGBTQ individuals and issues are represented in the media and why it matters.
2: Larry, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's my pleasure.
2: The social climate for LGBTQ people is greatly affected by how the print media, news, and entertainment, film, and TV represent LGBTQ people and issues. In general, how do you think the media are doing in terms of LGBTQ representation?
1: They're doing much better than they did in the past. The changes in the way all of the media handle LGBTQ people and their issues are very welcome. It was a long time coming, but they are now doing much better and on the whole doing better than they often do with issues concerning minority groups in society.
2: Let's talk specifically about the news industry. A newspaper headline over an article about the Stonewall Riots trumpeted, Homo nest rated, queen bees are stinging mad, clearly anti-gay language above an article that today would be considered unacceptably homophobic. A decade later came the AIDS crisis, and it wasn't until the late 1980s that the New York Times decided it was acceptable to use the word gay. Take us briefly through the history of how LGBTQ people have been portrayed in the news touching on major events like these.
1: You can divide the way that the news media have dealt with LGBTQ people in decades rather conveniently. And if we begin with the public explosion of a what was then called gay liberation movement after the Stonewall riots, the decade of the seventies is one in which LGBTQ people began to confront the media and demand more equitable treatment, demand to be covered in a way that was less marginalizing, less stigmatizing than had been in the past. And you quote that example from the coverage in the New York Post of the Stonewall riots, and that was fairly typical. Words like deviant, pervert were fairly standard in stories that dealt with gay people, and the stories were almost always about how they were being punished, fired, arrested, and so forth. The early successes of the gay rights movement included the decision by the American Psychiatric Association in 1973 to declassify homosexuality as a mental illness, which meant very significantly that from that point it was possible to argue with the media that it was inappropriate to use certain stigmatizing language in reference to gay people because the official authorities, the American Psychiatric Association, had declared that they were not mentally ill. At the same time, there were efforts to change the laws in such a way that they would prohibit discrimination against gay people in housing, in employment, in public accommodations. And these legislative successes, which began to occur in the 1970s through the 80s, also began to change the way in which the media news accounts dealt with gay issues. And the key success here was shifting the way in which the media framed gay issues from a frame of pathology and criminality to a frame of civil rights. The essential success, early success and continuing success, of the LGBTQ movement is in having the mass media, having society at large, and eventually having political leaders understand the issues as issues of civil rights and basic equality rather than as issues of marginality and of some kind of medical, legal, or moral religious stigma. Moving forward, by the middle of the 1970s, The backlash against LGBTQ people and their civil rights efforts began to be felt. The backlash was very much part of the emerging political engagement of the Christian right. By the mid-70s, gay rights became another focal point of the religious right. The success of the religious right was kind of cemented, certainly in their minds by the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, which they viewed as a victory for their efforts, for their point of view. So the decade of the 70s is a decade of civil rights successes, but civil rights battles swiftly replaced in the early 1980s with the AIDS epidemic. And the historical coincidence in 1981 of the inauguration of Ronald Reagan, the news treatments of LGBTQ people became dominated by the AIDS crisis and its various aspects, including the fighting back by gay people against the drug companies and the government's lack of response. That becomes the story of the 80s. The critical aspect of the 1980s in the AIDS epidemic is that it ended the pervasive invisibility of gay people, particularly gay men. In American society, as many famous people fell out of their closets into their coffins, and there was a mass awareness of the prevalence and pervasiveness of LGBT people, particularly gay men in this case, uh, across society. It lowered the bar for acknowledgement of the presence and ubiquity of gay people across society in a way that nothing had previously been able to do. So by the end of the 1980s, American society, as reflected and informed by the news media, was acknowledging the presence of LGBTQ people throughout American society uh, in a way that hadn't happened before. And the big change now in the 1990s was the shift of the LGBTQ movement partially away from the AIDS crisis as pharmaceutical, as medical advances began to halt the speed of that epidemic. The shift, which kind of coincided with the um, beginning of the Clinton administration in 1993, a shift to a clear civil rights focus and the early um, battles, the early issues of the early 1990s, began to focus on the ability of LGBTQ people to enter into and participate fully in the most central institutions of American society. The military, because the, really the first of these battles was over the, uh, the discrimination, discriminatory policies of the U.S. military towards LGBTQ LGBTQ people, uh, and which resulted in the don't ask, don't tell compromise, which was really a very regressive and bad solution, and which lasted unfortunately uh, for a while. Uh, then there was the fight against discrimination by the Boy Scouts, a fight that was lost because the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the Boy Scouts were a private organization and entitled to discriminate. And then, most famously and most notably the uh, the fight over same-sex marriage which had cropped up from time to time as early as the about 1970-71 with the beginning of the gay rights movement but had never really become a primary issue until 1994 when the hawaii supreme court ruled that the prohibition against same-sex marriage was sex discrimination And that set the issue up immediately as a primary focus of political um, debate and political contest for the next more than 10 years until finally the resolution in the Supreme Court a few years ago.
2: Film and television entertainment also play a big role in how LGBT people are perceived. Tell us about how the depictions of LGBTQ people and issues in film and TV have evolved.
1: Well, first of all, we are a media-saturated society. The dominant pattern in the mass media in this country, uh, in the entertainment media, has been to ignore minorities and to overwhelmingly tell stories that are really about straight white men and to a somewhat lesser degree straight white women. They have been the stars, the center of stage performers in pretty much all of our media. As minority groups begin to edge their way onto that stage, overwhelmingly time after time, instance after instance, whether it's African-Americans or ethnic minorities going back even farther or today. Latino or uh, or other minorities that are Asian Americans a good example There, The minorities begin to enter the the stage cast as victims and villains. They can be villains who threaten the hero and have to be countered, have to be defeated. But the pattern of minorities as a threat who need to be defeated, is consistent, and also as victims. They can be victims of humor, victims of ridicule, where their presence is inherently, and their roles are inherently comic. They're kind of figures of fun whom you can laugh at. Or, and this is the more progressive end of it, they can be victims who are pitied and tolerated and are sort of humanized by their suffering. And the same thing happened with gay people. When gay people begin to emerge into the mass media, they can be threatening. They can be a, uh, you know, a gay psycho killer, or a very common a lesbian psycho killer, and very commonly a trans psycho killer. Trans people show up in mass media early on, usually as some kind of psychologically disturbed and threatening character. They can also be there as figures of fun. They can be sissy boys whom you laugh at. Gradually, as things begin to become liberalized, and this is what happens you know, beginning in the 1970s with the successes of the LGBTQ movement in changing media patterns, what begins to happen is a few examples inserted into um, television or filmed content of positive counter-stereotypic examples where the point of the story is, you know, who would have thought that this person could be gay? All in the Family was the number one program on American television for several years in the early 70s, and a very important program in raising social issues that television had certainly avoided. And then a the key episode of All in the Family in, I think, 1971, Archie Bunker, this comical bigot, discovers that a friend of his who is a former NFL football player is gay. His son-in-law tells him that, and he doesn't believe it. And he sort of confronts the football player with this as, you know, isn't that a joke that he said that? And basically, the football player says he's right, and he's astounded. And this kind of pattern shows up fairly often. In the '70s uh, period of depictions, in which the message filtered through Hollywood is gay people are more prevalent than you think, and you you know you would be surprised they're not always the stereotypic effeminate man or masculine woman. Part of what that does is to still acknowledge or maintain the negative stigma of that stereotype, because in fact, some gay men are effeminate and you know many lesbians are masculine in appearance, and that's not a bad thing. To some extent, the media, by saying these people are gay and you would never know it, kind of maintains the stigmatizing view of people who are in fact fitting the stereotype. But it's progress, and it's progress in a number of key ways, one of which is reaching people, particularly young people, who live in an environment in which there are no visibly gay people. And it sends the message that it is okay and possible to be gay in a way that wasn't otherwise available in the culture. And that's a key way in which these depictions begin to change social attitudes and social views. By the time we get into the 90s, there are more depictions now of gay people than there had been in the past, and they begin to have a fuller goal than merely being gay, you know, who would have thought they were gay, but they're still secondary characters. They're still characters defined by their gayness as opposed to by other attributes, such as the wisecracking gay best friend uh, who replaces the previous African-American best friend or some other marginal character. The center stage is still held by straight white characters, as pretty much is today. But you begin to get more variety, which you never see, until the advent of subscription cable channels like Showtime or HBO, is stories that are set in any kind of a gay community. Gay people are always the odd person out in a straight environment. They're always the relative you didn't know was gay, the neighbor... Who is gay, the one gay friend, but there never are gay communities, never are gay groups, never are gay families. And that's something that only begins to happen later in the 90s and moving into after the turn of the century. And there, I would give a lot of credit, and I think one of the key factors that uh, was part of and ultimately responsible for changes in the media was the advent of reality television in the early 1990s. The pioneering show that launched the reality TV wave was MTV's The Real World. And The Real World has included gay members of these casts from the first year. The very first year of The Real World, which was set in New York, had a young man named Norman who was bisexual, really was gay, but introduced as bisexual. And every year uh, of the real world has included one or more uh, LGBTQ characters. The third year of the real world was the particularly important one in that the program was really built around a Cuban emigre young man named Pedro Zamora who was HIV positive and an AIDS educator and was a very charismatic figure. When Pedro tragically died in real life, Shortly after the program had been aired, Bill Clinton called them in the hospital. It was a public event, and it was one of those milestones in raising disability, both of uh, LGBT people, also in this case with Pedro, uh, a Cuban-American, and somebody who died of AIDS. But the reality TV genre, which exploded very quickly in part, because of the success of the real world and then the introduction of a series of real reality contest programs survivor big brother the amazing race and you know and on and on and on those programs have included lgbt characters from the very beginning these programs did a lot particularly for the generation of people growing up with reality tv as a major part of their media diet did a lot to make it clear to people that LGBTQ people were part of the real world, were part of the world they lived in. And to my mind, part of what made reality TV real was the unabashed acknowledgement of the presence of gay people, unlike fictional television and films, which by and large didn't do that. So reality TV, I think, played a, a really central role in transforming the understanding of the presence of LGBTQ people in the minds of younger people, what we now call millennials.
0: This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Callie is talking with Professor Larry Gross, a professor of communication at the Andenberg School for Communications and Journalism at the University of Southern California. He's a pioneer in the subject of Gay and Lesbian Studies.
2: Professor Larry Gross, how do representations of LGBTQ people compare with representations of other minorities?
1: Well, all minorities share the characteristics of being marginalized. What is distinctive about LGBTQ people is that LGBTQ people don't come from LGBTQ communities. They find those communities and they build those communities, but they're not born into them. LGBTQ people are born in, you know, one might say in enemy territory. They're certainly not born into communities of people who are like them. They're born into communities of people who expect them to be standard issue heterosexuals. When people begin to realize that they're not what they are expected to be, and the same, of course, would go even more so for trans people, they don't have the support of communities that share these experiences and these challenges and you know these perspectives. In fact, they're usually pretty well aware that the people around them, their parents, their siblings, their friends, their teachers, would not be thrilled to find out about these differences, that they would be challenged in this way. So... They have to find information about who they are and what that means and what to do from other sources, which is one of the reasons why the media plays such an important role because that's where we generally turn to find out about the world and to find out about things. And one of the big differences between growing up as an LGBTQ person today and 10 years ago or certainly 20 or 30 years ago today is that now there is a lot of information available in the culture, available in the media, available in the press, and very importantly, available on the Internet, none of which was true 15, 20, 30 years ago. The common experience back then was for young people to realize they were different and have a sense of, you know, I don't know whether there's anybody else like this. I thought I was the only one to look around. And when they saw something, they typically would see something that was visible because it was so stereotypic. And therefore, the message would be that if that's what you are, then you are confined to certain stereotypes and to certain negative treatment. You will be defined in various negative ways and often treated very badly. Now, of course, this still goes on. There is bullying and there is negative treatment from families in many cases and certainly from schoolmates and other people, but nothing like what would have happened in the past, in part because we are all much more aware now as a society of variation and difference than was the case in the past. That's the key difference between LGBTQ people and other minorities, I I would say, is that as they grow up, LGBTQ people can reach out and find people like them and get solidarity and support from others. The internet now plays a very important role in that because it overcomes geographic isolation. I mean, if you grow up in a remote area and there's nobody else around like you, you have a a form of isolation that can be very uh, damaging. Today you can reach out through the internet and find people provide support in a way that wasn't the case before, and information and images and and so forth. So that handicap has been markedly reduced in a way that's, that's very significant. The other aspect of LGBTQ people that in a way is related to the one I mentioned is that we're everywhere. Members of the LGBTQ minority cross class lines, they cross ethnic lines, they cross gender lines. So they tend to be more diverse as a group than would be the case with other minorities. And as a result, it's not entirely clear what the phrase LGBTQ community would refer to, because the differences within that group can be quite as large as the differences between them and other people. But they still share a common sense of difference and a difference that has consequences that they have to learn to understand and deal with.
2: Is it important to include LGBTQ people in the process of media production, in other words, for them to be involved behind the scenes as well as in front of the cameras?
1: Well, certainly, absolutely. First of all, they have been involved in media production from the beginning. The difference between people behind the camera and people in front of the camera is very important because it has never been as difficult for people behind the camera to be openly gay, certainly not in recent years as it is for people in front of the camera, for the actors. Right now, in Hollywood, the number of openly gay writers and directors and producers is quite large. Hollywood is a lot more worried when it comes to actors being openly gay, particularly what they call A-list actors, uh, leading characters because to be a leading actor means you have to be credible, particularly for men, credible both as an action and a romantic lead. And Hollywood is still convinced, I think erroneously, but they're still convinced that the public will not readily accept an openly gay actor as a romantic slash action hero. They'll accept them as a humorous character, or as a character actor, in a variety of roles, but not in the leading roles that make somebody a bankable A-list actor who can, as they say, open a movie, draw the audiences in for the big opening weekend. And particularly as Hollywood is more and more consumed with comic book-derived movies, these sort of big franchises that come out of the comic book world, they're even more worried about the possibility that a lead actor would be known to be gay. So the number of openly gay actors is much smaller than the number of openly gay writers, directors, and producers. But that's changing.
2: What can we do to foster and improve accurate representations of LGBTQ people in the media?
1: Well, one thing you can do is become an active, engaged audience member of programs and films that are positive and good support them, go to them. And in the age of social media, the audience gets to have a say in ways that never was true before. The age of social media between Facebook and Twitter and all the other uh, social media platforms has changed the relationship between media and audiences in a fundamental way because there is more two-way communication now. The audience speaks to itself and they speak to the media in a way they didn't before. And the media pay attention because everyone is aware of the power of social media. So active audiences who talk back and who both applaud the good and condemn the negative and the bad have a role to play and have an influence that was simply not the case before. So audiences can definitely make a difference. And they do.
2: Professor Larry Gross, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Sure, it was my pleasure.
0: Professor Larry Gross teaches communications at the Annenberg School for Communications and Journalism at the University of Southern California. He has authored numerous books on the subject of gay and lesbian studies. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team including youth participants Alex, Becca, Ari, Samantha, Callie, Andrea, Max, Quinn, Druv, Nisia, Lauren, Dante, Lucas, Brianna, Sarah, Jamie, and me, Stephen. Our assistant producers are Alex Mintz and Josh Valley, and our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project Hotline at 866 488 7386 Or Visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Stephen. Thank you for listening. See you next time. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.